0: Welcome back to Episode 3, Season 2 of the Learning Curve Podcast at Edmonton Catholic Schools. It's great to have you here again today. In this episode, we are exploring the impact of positive reinforcement, an important factor in creating positive learning environments. I'd like to share a personal story from a few years ago when I had a student with challenging behaviors in the classroom. Imagine this. I had a student who was struggling to manage their emotions. They often resorted to frustration-fueled actions like throwing objects. As a young teacher, I felt lost. I didn't know how to handle the situation. With some guidance and advice from my inclusive consultant at the time, we noticed that the behaviors often came when the student received a grade they viewed as bad or poor, or when the concepts were perceived as too hard by the student. Something amazing happened. When I stopped giving out grades, weekly, and focused on feedback. I set up a system for one-on-one conferencing to help all students see their strengths, and more importantly, their next steps. For the student in question, something special happened. Through this newfound culture of feedback in the classroom, the student felt more open to taking risks in their learning. Over time, they became less concerned with their grades and began to attempt that work that was too hard. I also think by the end of the year that the student trusted me and they trusted that I cared for them and wished for their success. This not only reduced those frustration-fueled incidents of throwing, but it also helped the student better regulate their emotions when it came to learning new concepts or seeing their grades. Before we explore these concepts further, let's pause for prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dear God, As we gather here today, we seek your guidance. Help us explore the impact of positive reinforcement with open hearts and receptive minds. Grant us the wisdom to understand its impact on our classrooms, and the empathy to connect with our students. May this podcast shine a light on creating positive learning environments. In your name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We also acknowledge that we are recording today on the traditional land of Treaty 6, the ancestral territory of the Indigenous peoples. We honor the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 4 and the contributions of all Indigenous communities who have cared for this land for generations. With gratitude, we recognize their wisdom and resilience. As we journey through this episode, we understand that progress involves respecting the knowledge passed down by Indigenous cultures we commit ourselves to working towards personal and collective growth to respond to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. In unity, we call upon all our communities to engage with the diverse peoples who call this land home. Let us foster an environment where positivity flourishes, where the richness of Indigenous cultures is celebrated, and where reconciliation is achieved through respect, empathy, and collaboration. May our journey be guided by humility, compassion, and a shared commitment to truth and understanding. In today's episode, we have an agenda filled with discussions and thought-provoking content for you. Here's what's in store. Jennifer Sbeo-Herasimyak will take us on a journey into the world of neuroscience, where she will explore positive learning environments. Our guest for today's interview is Vince Bustamante, an instructional coach, Curriculum content developer and author with Corwin. He will share his insights on assessment practices within a standards based framework, or as we know it in Alberta, an outcomes based framework. In our Mindset Matters segment, Tracy Halusawascu will lead a discussion on the power of positive reinforcement in nurturing relationships, empathy, and self awareness in our students. And finally, in our Lit Literature segment, Alison Gabucci will lead us through a literary exploration of Seen, Heard, and Valued by Lian Yang. This is our mentor book here at Learning Services this year for Universal Design for Learning, and it is a book that emphasizes the importance of supportive
1: learning environments.
0: That wraps up our agenda for today's episode. Let's dive in.
2: Welcome to The Learning Lab, where we decode the brain secrets of learning. I'm your host, Jennifer Espeo-Harasimiuk, ready to take you on a synaptic saunter as we explore the power of creating a positive learning environment that fosters a supportive and non-threatening classroom atmosphere. We'll explore how such an environment can facilitate and enhance learning and retention and uncover the neuroscience behind it all. So let's get started. Picture a classroom where students feel safe, respected, and valued. A space where they can freely express their thoughts and ideas without fear of judgment or criticism. This type of environment sets the stage for optimal learning experiences. But what does neuroscience have to say about it? When students feel threatened or stressed, the brain's limbic system, responsible for emotional processing, can hijack the learning process. The amygdala, a key player in the limbic system, activates the body's stress response, releasing cortisol and other stress hormones. These chemicals can actually impair memory formation and cognitive functions, hindering learning and retention. On the other hand, when students feel safe and supported, the brain's executive functions, located in the prefrontal cortex, a specific part of the frontal lobe of the cerebrum, which we touched on in episode one, becomes engaged. This region plays a crucial role in decision-making, problem-solving, and and attentional control. In a positive learning environment, the prefrontal cortex can operate optimally, allowing students to focus, process information effectively, and engage in deep learning. Additionally, Positive emotions have a profound impact on the brain's ability to learn and retain information. When students experience positive emotions, such as joy, curiosity, or a sense of belonging, the release of neurotransmitters like dopamine enhances neuroplasticity, the brain's capacity to form new connections and strengthen existing ones. This heightened plasticity promotes better memory consolidation and retrieval, leading to improved learning outcomes. So how can we create this positive learning environment in our classrooms? Here are some strategies. Number one, build relationships. Foster strong connections with your students by showing genuine interest, offering support and practicing empathy. Encourage peer-to-peer relationships and collaborative learning to promote a sense of belonging and trust. Number two, encourage risk-taking. Create a culture where mistakes are viewed as opportunities for growth and learning. Emphasize the value of effort, persistence, and resilience. Celebrate progress and provide constructive feedback to inspire further improvement. Number three, cultivate a growth mindset. Help students develop a growth mindset where they believe in their ability to improve through effort and practice. Encourage them to embrace challenges, view setbacks as learning experiences, and develop a love for lifelong learning. By implementing these strategies, we can create a positive learning environment that nurtures the brain's optimal functioning, promotes emotional well-being, and and boosts students' learning and retention. Remember, the power of a supportive and non-threatening classroom atmosphere goes beyond academics it positively shapes the hearts and minds of our students. Now that you've gained insights into the neuroscience behind creating a positive learning environment, let me leave you with one final point to ponder until our next episode. How might you prime your students' brains for learning by creating a positive and safe learning environment? Let us know in the comments.
0: Uh, today for our interview, we have Vince Bustamante. He is a Calgary-based instructional coach, curriculum consultant, developer, and author who has co-authored two best-selling books with Corwin. Welcome, Vince.
3: Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Tell us about yourself and what brought you to consulting.
3: Sure. Yeah. So um, I was. I, I have. I am a teacher. I have been a teacher. I worked for over 13 years for uh, MIT Catholic schools as a social studies teacher, a curriculum consultant. Um, and then when I was a curriculum consultant, I attended a conference, a visible learning conference that was put on by um, John Hattie. And in conversations with certain people, they liked some of the ideas I had. And I kind of literally fell into writing uh, my first book, Great Teaching by Design. And then kind of when your book, Hits a certain level of status, bestseller level, the company kind of wants to hire you to facilitate workshops across um, North America. And that was kind of right in the middle of the pandemic. So all of the workshops were virtual. And then when the, when the, you know, distance learning kind of stopped, Corwood had approached me to do this on a more full time basis. And there's some school districts that I work with more intensely. So I stepped away from um, formal education, uh, districts for, for a little bit. Um, and this is kind of my first year that I'm independently consulting, uh, through Corwin. So that's kind of how how I got into it.
0: Showcases all the opportunities we have in education beyond teaching in the classroom.
3: It seems like, um, the further you get into education outside of the classroom, the more kind of the, it blooms and there's more opportunities.
0: Yeah, exactly. Let's dive into our, our topic for today, uh, student motivation and, and grading practices. As, as I read through all the, the research and the, the works on it, I'm, I'm starting to understand that, that grades are, are often used as, as motivators. Um, how, how do you understand this to affect students' inner drive to learn?
3: I think it's, it's such an interesting um, dilemma because grades have been kind of the way we've always done it. And, uh, you know, we've always instructed, we've always assessed, we've always graded. And it seems like the the more the longer students are in schools, the more they're used to that type of um, external motivation. However, I don't think it's the best practice to use grades as motivators or especially as punishment. Um, sometimes the grading situation when you're when you're assessing multiple assessments Students can perceive that as a start stop. So my learning has stopped because I've gotten a, a number grade or a percentage grade. And then I restart my learning. And there's this disassociation between the process of learning. So it's, I, I, I don't support, I don't think it's it's good to use grades as rewards and punishments. I understand sometimes in the necessity of a classroom and in the realities of a classroom, we may not have a choice. But overall, um, there are better ways to, to, um, spark motivation in students that is not based on a percentage grade.
0: Yeah, do you want to talk about some of those better ways that you you've experienced in the classroom as a teacher or that you've seen in your consulting?
3: Yeah, so one of my one of my big focuses for assessment is is process focused over product focused assessment and what I mean by that is is a lot of times when we grade something it's a series of products, right? Let's just use Tests and quizzes as the quote unquote summative product, and we take we give our kids or our students eight to ten tests and quizzes a year, and then we average that and that becomes the grade. That doesn't seem motivating to me. So I, I advocate for a process focused um, type of journey where students are able to mass to, to, to show mastery in that assessment or in their skill. And so we, we pull the skills across the school year, and then students have to have multiple opportunities to to share or show what they know. And that just keeps growing their their grades. So rather than a snapshot in time, the final assessment is a, is a culminating product of growth, um, which is more attuned to how most of the real world works anyway, right? You know, if you're in your second year as an assessment and reporting consultant, you've probably grown exponentially since your first day. And I don't want to spend time... Um, as an employer, um, evaluating you as an individual based on your performance in the first week, rather, I, if that's where you are now. And that's, to me, is more motivating for students. It doesn't mean that we need to change the types of assessments we're giving. It doesn't mean we need to really, you know, reconstruct our assessment practices or our instructional practices. It just means we need to reconceptualize the way students are allowed to demonstrate their mastery.
0: I heard in there that you, you're kind of alluding to a misconception I hear a lot in, in my role is well, grades are preparing students for the real world, but in fact, when do we get graded in the real world? And when when do we never have an opportunity to to redo something or try again or improve?
3: I think too, with the way that that technology's going and and so now we're when we grade, we're also fighting this um a i situation is this has a student created this based on chat g p t has a student created this um have they found this answer somewhere else are they plagiarizing and we we worry a lot about cheating, and we do spend a lot of effort trying to stop students from cheating rather than asking why like why do they feel like they need to cheat? are we backing them into a corner and saying? You need to do this assessment now because it's going to prove whether you know what you're doing. And then that, when they get back into that corner, they seek out any other opportunity that's not actually learning and proving what they know, right? So they're spending lots of effort figuring out a way to finish the task rather than being able to demonstrate what they know and do not know.
0: So in a traditional grading framework, um, often, like if I'm thinking back to when I was in high school, uh, the the Total calculations for my my teachers' grade books were, were based on assignments and tasks, and um, we know that from the research and from the efforts in Edmonton Catholic schools that that we're moving more towards a standards based practice or outcomes based uh, practice and, and grading setup. Can you talk to how you understand this framework?
3: Sure, yeah, so um, obviously interchangeably used. I work in Canada and in the United States, the United States they call it standards based or where I am right now in California, they call it standards-based. Um, to Catholic uses outcome-based. Same philosophy, which is students have multiple opportunities to demonstrate mastery according to an outcome rather than a product. So you were saying you have a series of assignments. Oftentimes, your assignments may include multiple outcomes lumped together, and then your assessment is just on the assignment rather than the outcome within, the outcomes within your assignment. And when we really break down assignments into outcomes, we can see a, a more specific pattern of knowing and not knowing, right? So for example, if you are a high school teacher and you're giving uh, a unit test, quote unquote, that hits four or five outcomes, and you're not um, labeling or indicating which questions associate with which outcomes, you don't actually know where the student is is demonstrating proficiency and whether or not demonstrating proficiency so an outcomes-based or a standards-based reporting philosophy is that we we evaluate our students learning based on individual outcomes and standards so that we can have a better determination of what they know and do not know and the other thing that i personally believe in when it comes to that is students have multiple opportunities to demonstrate mastery and when they get to that mastery rather than average out The rest of the assessments, that final mastery demonstration indicates that they've actually learned something.
0: I've been talking about this with teachers. A question that comes up is, okay, I'm in the process of shifting my practice. I understand that I need to collect uh, evidence of student learning and then report on the outcome in the end, but how do I organize this and how do I keep track or how do I give that multiple modes and and not get overwhelmed myself as the teacher
3: yeah i think first of all it's it's a difficult it's a it's a it's a rigorous shift i think we should acknowledge that that the shift from breaking decades of traditional grading practices and now shifting to something new is is complicated and there's going to be those growing pains which are fine like i think we need to accept that there are going to be growing pains but one of the, the the biggest thing The first thing that I recommend when you shift is just going into your existing assignments and blueprinting them, determining what of my existing assignments hit which parts of these outcomes, because it tells a really interesting story, right? So when I was working for Emerson Catholic Schools, we started this process um, before the common formative assessments came in. We started a process where I had grouped high school department heads together to just blueprint final exams to determine how many of my questions are coming from related issue one, how many are coming from related issue two and how many are coming from related issue three. And independently, each school had a different, um, different measurement. So different amount of questions for each related issue, which is problematic in itself because the related issues are not weighted equally and the outcomes are not weighted equally. So, blueprinting really opened our eyes and had a we had these great conversations like why are there 25 questions from this one micro outcome just because there's a lot of um content that we can pull from right so blueprinting i think is a really great way to start and then Accepting the fact that students grow over a school year and that whatever they show at the end is better than what they did at the beginning, and we should stop averaging those scores.
0: Those are wonderful <laughs> beginning tips for for teachers looking at um, embodying this standards-based or outcomes-based mindset. Um, how do you think standards-based or outcomes-based uh, frameworks support uh, intrinsic motivation for students?
3: I think, I think it's, it's, it, when it's communicated to students properly, it can develop that intrinsic motivation. Students, well, let's be honest. It takes us, a group of teachers and professionals, a long time to actually figure out what outcomes based reporting is or what standards based reporting is. Once we figure that out, we owe it to our students to communicate what the outcomes based process is. Because if we are just, they're just going to perceive another assignment as another assignment. And in the grade book, it's just going to go into a different box that they don't see. So communicating the philosophy, I think, is a good place to start. And acknowledging the fact that we're really focusing on student growth. And that although we're learning it in September, you have longer than September to demonstrate your proficiency at this skill. And kids, students, I shouldn't say kids, students are... um Attuned to that in their regular life. You look at a lot of other things outside of school and students are growing. If you have a student athlete in your class and they're playing, let's say they're, they're playing a moderate to high level hockey, right? Well, if they come in at the lower echelon of the team, they're like the 18th or 19th guy selected for this team. They don't just accept that. Not all of them accept that. They try to grow their skill capacity and grow their, their abilities to break into the top five. Well, that's no different than in a classroom, right? We can grow our skill capacity. So rather than seeing it as one and done assessments, the journey is more important. And that way, I think that starts to spark that intrinsic motivation.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that analogy of of the sports team. And it's it's not about just the game at the end. It's Everything you're doing leading up to the game. Another question that I, I'm getting from teachers is, or maybe a comment that I'm getting from teachers, or a problem that they're they're looking to to solve is, my students are always asking me, "Is this for marks?" And they don't want to do the task unless it's for marks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we're alluding to that conversation uh, to have with students and and building that up, but. What would you recommend to teachers who are seeing that problem prominently in their classrooms? Uh,
3: that's that's a hard one to, to navigate around. Again, um, going back to the fact that you, depending on the age or grade you teach, you're breaking down previous years of that construct that everything was for marks and everything counts. Um, when I was in the classroom. Pre prior to outcomes based reporting, I kind of dabbled in this mastery learning thing that was part of the high school redesign program, like back in 2015 and my delivery of the information was, um, the, what happens formatively indicates to me what I need to do to help you for that big summative thing. So you had said, you know, it's not just about the game. It's about practice. Um that's how i would deliver it is everything that happens before our graded event test performance activity whatever is for me you're doing it to tell me what you don't know so i can help you get there and i think the delivery of the information that way becomes less punitive for students cuz students i think generally intrinsically students see assessments as punitive something that's happening to them rather than something they're involved in, and that needs to be a shift. You you and I, as teacher and student, are involved in the process formatively, so I can prepare you as the quote-unquote expert in the classroom. I can prepare you as best as I possibly can for that summative assessment. So everything doesn't have to be for grades. If everything's for grades, then nothing's for grades, really, right? Because kids are just going to do it for the sake of doing it. They're not going to do it for the sake of sharing their understanding, and that needs to be the um, cultural shift that happens in the classroom.
0: It, it sounds like we have to ourselves before we can get there with our students, let go of the assignment, like let go of my all my students need to complete every assignment to get the mark. Uh, we see this happening um and I've done it. I've I've done it when I was teaching junior high as a beginning teacher. And uh, I, I want all those assignments turned in because that's my evidence or maybe that's my only piece of evidence and I need it turned in. So I'm going to give an NHI that counts for a zero in the grade book. And until I let go of it doesn't have to be every assignment every time. And how do I engage students in that process or that cycle of feedback? Can can we truly start moving in that direction where students are are motivated towards their work? Because learning is the focus, not the grades.
3: And, and to put value on that, it's really hard to let go of. And I think, you know, as a teacher, it's just really hard to let go of that. And, and the longer you've been in the classroom, the longer you've been assessing this way, sometimes the... the the growth, the the learning curve is really sharp. And it's it comes to a point where where deep down, if teachers are evaluating and assessing in their class as regularly as they are, they probably already have a really good idea of the level of understanding of their students. You don't need a, I don't need a five question quiz on Friday to tell me that this student is going to blow it out of the water or that this student needs more support. I probably already have a good idea and so leveraging the student voice in the process, tell me what you don't know. I'm here to help. I'm not here to hurt, right? And the, So the quiz, which we think is sometimes traditionally, I'm going to give them a quiz so that they can tell me what they know, is perceived by the student as, oh my God, I have to prove everything again on a marked or a graded exam. That's problematic for sure.
0: Now that we've explored standards-based or outcomes-based frameworks and and how it supports student motivation towards learning, are there any real-life examples or research that shows how um, using these frameworks uh, either negatively impacts student learning or supports student learning?
3: So, yeah, I think um, when you look at traditional grading practices and feedback, um, there's a complete disassociation so in 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 professor john hattie's latest visible learning research um his newest book he he broke down the meta analyses on feedback he broke down the different types of feedback and and their effect sizes and one of the most shocking things is that grades has a 0.19 effect size out of and and we know if you know anything about the visible learning research 0.4 is that hinge point so comments and grades aren't the best motivators for student achievement and growth because oftentimes comments and grades happen so far after the fact that students are out of that learning process. So task and process focused feedback and the timing of feedback is exponentially more important to student learning than comments and grades. And that's one thing that I think outcomes-based reporting can do for us rather than traditional, right? And I'm thinking of myself, Um, when there was a year that I had taught, I taught three or four of the exact same course. So on a Friday, I would, I would do an, um, I would assign an essay and that means I would collect 200 essays or 175 essays and it would take two and a half to three weeks to get back. Well, three weeks in a high schooler's life is a long time. So if I give them that, that, that comment, those comments back, they're essentially useless because it's it's forgotten the test is done the assignment's done so the timing of the feedback and the timing of of um your formative assessment or the timeliness of your formative assessment is more significant than grading as is task and process focused feedback so an outcomes based um classroom or school advocates for that more than a traditional traditionally graded classroom
0: Feedback is always an important one to remember in this formative cycle because it's not formative if we're not giving feedback. And um, I, I agree. I've I read John Hattie's uh, Visible Thinking for Teachers textbook, and I, I remember those points jumping out as well. The timing is crucial for when you're providing that feedback so that students can actually implement it before the, the end. Another piece of John Hattie's research that is interesting to a group of teachers in our division right now is self-reported grades so he has that as one of the top two um, impacts on on student achievement um, alongside collective teacher efficacy and this group of teachers who we're working with are working with Sarah Zerwin's pointless and they're they're trying to um, de-emphasize the the grade in the classroom and focus on that formative and only grade when they have to grade at the end of the cycle. Can you comment on how self-reported grades can support student learning?
3: Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you look at um, John's research and the more you're kind of around John and the more you're immersed in it. um, He always tries to advocate for not just looking at the highest one, you know, like he says, one of the biggest criticisms or one of the biggest regrets he had is in, in the first publication in 2009 was ranking them from one to 270 because then teachers would cherry pick the top five and say, we're only going to do this when in reality, there's more of an interconnectedness that exists between them. Um, But when we look at self-reported grades, all of the things we've talked about are attached to self-reported grades. You can't have self-reported grades without appropriate formative assessments. You can't have self-reported grades without a feedback cycle. You can't have self-reported grades without students um, experiencing that cultural shift of assessment and reporting. Not to say that self-reported grades aren't aren't uh, can't be done, but I'm just saying they're all kind of attached. Now, when we look at self-reported grades, I think it's significant to to acknowledge the fact that um, students have a really good idea of where they are, and oftentimes a better idea than where the teachers when the teachers have an assessment. And I used to say you could design the world's best exam, world's best quiz, give it to a student, but unless we can physically, you know get into their brain and see what's going on. We don't know. They're hiding things. And and there's reasons why they hide those things. Teenagers, elementary students are all experiencing different growth patterns and 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 changes biologically that may lead to you know, they're just withholding information or maybe our classroom isn't seen as a safe place to share a lot of that information and that permeates into um what they what they show us in terms of academic achievement. So Self-reporting grades or self-reported grades and students tracking their progress has a huge impact on on growth and achievement, um, but necessarily can't be done on its own individually without all of the other environmental factors that we've talked about.
0: If you could give your top couple strategies for educators to use to encourage students to do their best work without relying on grades as motivators.
3: So for me, I. Um, there are a few formative assessment strategies that I love that are not graded or not based on points. The first is a, is a single point or a one point rubric. I love single point and one point rubrics, especially if they are linked to success criteria that's being used in the classroom. Um, having those as a feedback tool works really nicely. So, um, if you're listening to the podcast and you don't know what, what single point or one point rubrics are, Um, there's some really great articles out there on, um, the cult of pedagogy blog website that kind of introduces what they are. But for me, I use them as, um, feedback mechanisms. So in, in classes that I, that I used to teach and in classes in, in schools that I'm working with now, students have to provide a blank or a completed single point rubric prior to submission of a product. And I use that, we use that as a regulator for whether we think students are ready. So that's, that's one really great strategy um the other another really great strategy that i'm sure a lot of teachers are already using but i cannot i cannot speak highly enough of is um color-coded feedback so red dot and green dot focused feedback so um it works for two reasons and and i'll be very very kind of honest in the in both reasons if you're a teacher who has um piles and piles of grading to do essays whatever and we kind of take a lot of time writing the comments only to have the students never look at them and throw them in the bin, throw their, you know, they're just, they're done. once they see the number, Um, my advocation is once you have pre-established criteria for success, you would code red and green necessarily. So red would indicate have not met, has not met the success criteria. Green would indicate has met and exceeded. And you just return the assignment with red and green dots, withhold the total grade points, and the students don't get their total grade points until they give themselves the comments or give a peer a comment. So what used to be an assignment that was submitted and then returned and kind of died, right, because the, the the kids don't care about it anymore, now becomes another tool of learning. So you you would hand in your assi- your essay to me. I would give it red dot and green dot I'd return it to you with the success criteria and it's your responsibility to make those determinations why did I get red why did I get green when you return that formative assessment to me I then give you the grade so it's it's a complementary thing to a, a major summative assessment but can also be done independently it can it can also be done in an in a formative Kind of manner. So those those are two. They're not fancy. They're not. Um, they're not. You know, groundbreaking. I'm sure you've probably heard of both of them. But those are my two favorites. And both of them leverage more student voice in the process of assessment.
0: Thanks for sharing. And uh, I think it's really important to reemphasize on on the red dot, green dot, no no points, no no grade in that process. Um, really let students do the thinking and, and apply the feedback.
3: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: So, uh, a question that I, I didn't have on the list for you, uh, I'd like to ask is: with all the consulting work you're doing across Canada, in the United States, or wherever else in the world, you end up. What are what are some of the common themes that teachers are working on in assessment?
3: There is a shift now away from traditional grading towards standards based. Uh, I do a lot of work in California. Just currently, that just seems to be where they're hiring me, um, and there's this shift towards or away from from traditional grading for a multiple for multiple reasons. Um, a lot of the schools that I work in um, are in tougher demographic areas, lower socioeconomic status, and um, the kids are quote unquote achieving below standard. Like the kids, you know, are coming in at sixth grade, and in, in the sixth grade class, forty percent of the kids are reading at a second or third grade level. Um, and it has become to the point where um, teachers don't see the value in traditional grading. It doesn't make sense for me to, to grade them against sixth grade standards if they can't even read beyond a second or third grade level. So the shift to standards and the shift to, to process and progress is more significant um, in these classrooms. That's one thing. I would also say um, there is this universal shift away from right and wrong more like proof and not proof in the sense that um, right and wrong, a black and white assessment doesn't share enough information to the teacher on what the students do or do not know, right? I can, on a diagnostic assessment um, or a pre-assessment, I can just guess my multiple choice questions. And if, if the students are smart enough to gain the system, they'll purposely get everything wrong because on the post-assessment, it'll show monumental growth. That doesn't serve a purpose at all for anybody. So we're, we're trying to leverage more student voice in, um, in the assessment process.
0: Right now in Edmonton Catholic Schools, we have EDIAR, which is Equity, Diversity and Anti-Racism Efforts. And we have a whole team leading that. But in assessment, uh, one area that we've been talking about is equity and how standards-based or outcomes-based systems promote equity for all learners.
3: Yeah, I think too, one of the things that you can, if you attach the equity piece to it is, um, oftentimes teachers choose the medium in which something is completed. And we have to remember that our outcomes should dictate the medium, right? So example me, and I'll use my, my case from a, from a classroom teacher perspective is I collected a lot of things in writing, even though there was no requirement that students had to write it. That was my requirement. And that is not an equitable assessment. Practice, especially when you measure them against the outcome that just says explain, right? If explain can mean anything, explain can mean a conversation, explain can mean, um, an artistic interpretation, but we, we push our own biases as teachers, our own assessment biases onto our kids. And that's not an equitable process. So oftentimes a a great marker of equity can be what is, what is in the outcome. And I know that doesn't sound really enticing at all because, you know, teachers loathe breaking down outcomes. Um, it's not a, it's not a fun professional learning experience. We know that it's, it's, it's a rigorous one. But if we go back to the source of what we need to be teaching, that should also indicate to us that, Hey, maybe I shouldn't be collecting everything in writing. If 50% of my students are ELL learners, that doesn't privilege them. And, and then they get a, a, a bad grade. Not because they don't know, but because we've, we've they we they're not communicating it in writing, which is not required by the 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 outcome or the standard at all.
0: You bring up a, a great point on teacher clarity, and it's a painful and rigorous process sometimes. But taking the time to, to do it and really engage in it, you can, you can have that richness and that openness for universal design for learning. All right. Well. Um, our listeners may or may not know, but you have a new book out with uh, our previous Deputy Superintendent, Tim Cusack. Do you want to speak to it a bit?
3: Sure. So the, it has nothing to do with assessment. So if you're, so my apologies for that. It doesn't go with the theme of the, the podcast. But we, we do have a book. Uh, it's, it's called Leader Ready uh, for Pathways to Prepare Aspiring School Leaders. And it's predicated on the fact that there is this shortage of uh, people. Who want to become school leaders uh, both in the United States and in and in Canada, and a lot of it is focused on um, on Tim's uh, doctoral research of of aspirations of assistant principals and so the the leader ready book is uh, provides kind of four different things that we should be focusing on as for mentoring aspiring leaders, whether they're assistant principals, whether they're um, district curriculum consultants like yourself who may have aspirations of school leadership one day we we created four pathways um, that we should be focusing on that are more deliberate. We're being more deliberate in the preparation of those leaders um, rather than just this standard, let's just thrust you into the seat. And although not as common in Edmonton Catholic schools, it's more common in the United States for teachers, school teachers, especially in smaller districts, to just go directly into principalship And that's a huge gap um and so that's that's kind of where we where the lens we took it from um the book itself is is intended for people who are aspiring into leadership and also intended for people who are in leadership trying to recruit um more aspiring leaders and one of the one of the the key things that we wrote this this lens that we wrote it from especially for me was um, we need to dispel of this idea that time, quote unquote, time is the only measurement for leadership preparedness, because that's not the case, right? We can, we need to go, as Tim always likes to say, going further upstream to find our leaders earlier in their career to give them more time to prepare them to be principals rather than just. Okay, you've got your ten years of service pin. Now it's time to apply for your assistant principalship, and then you've been an assistant principal for three years, five years. You're ready to move into principalship. The, the time measurement is not the best way to measure preparedness. So that's kind of um, a little bit of an elevator elevator pitch for uh, Leader Ready.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing. You also have several other publications, and some of them are on assessment.
3: Sure. So you heard me speak a a lot about the visible learning research. And um, that was kind of the litmus to me writing the first book, which was called Great Teaching by Design. Um, And the purpose of Great Teaching by Design was to introduce people to the visible learning research and then how to make it work in a classroom. So as you said, Julia, it's not an uncommon thing for teachers to do, which is, you know, we'll cherry pick the top five. And then we'll just give them the old college try and see what happens. Great Teaching by Design provides an implementation framework for whichever uh, high in, high yield intervention strategies of that that John Hattie recommends. So that's that's the first book, Great Teaching by Design. It's kind of written for all classroom teachers to be used in a classroom. Um, and the second book, uh, second bestseller that I wrote co-authored with um, Doug Fisher, Nancy Fry and John as well, was called the Assessment Playbook for Distance and Blended Learning. Um, and we wrote it specifically for to be kind of published during the pandemic, but although it's for distance and blended learning, the book reads almost like um, an encyclopedia of assessment strategies that can still be leveraged in the regular classroom. You just need to read it from that lens. Like this was written during the pandemic of 2020. Um, we just may need to remove some of those those virtual things. But a lot of the assessment strategies I talked about today um, are written in that book. And you can find um, the assessment playbook is probably more likely on Amazon. Just assessment playbook for distance and blended learning. The other two, Great Teaching by Design and Leader Ready, are available on Amazon or on uh, at Corwin, dot com.
0: Perfect. I'll, I'll link uh, all those texts in the description of the episode for anybody who would like, uh, the direct link. I think we're coming to the end of the episode here. Uh, one question that I ask all of my guests is, uh, what is a dream that you have for education?
3: Um, I think a dream that I have for education. Oh boy. I have lots of dreams for education. Um, but I think one, of, one of the more prominent ones now is, um, having a classroom environment that doesn't focus so much on ranking students on their current abilities um but rather focuses on just growth and i know that that it's it's more of like the finish model right where you come in as a student and whoever you are and you learn based on your 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 skills and dispositions and you grow as a person as well as a student that would be one of my dreams very difficult to do in a north american setting considering the fact that we're really heavily reliant on you know curriculum standards outcomes grades and all that stuff but that would be that would be the dream that i have
0: that's a that's a wonderful dream to have where we're seeing students as as humans as individuals who have their own journey of growth thanks again for being on the podcast and taking time to share your insights with us we really appreciate it vince
3: Thank you. It was, it's nice to be back virtually in Empathic Catholic Schools. It's, it was great uh, conversation, and um, thank you for having me.
1: Positive reinforcement is a powerful tool that can transform the classroom environment and enhance student learning. When used effectively, it not only boosts students' self-esteem, but also nurtures their desire to learn and grow. So how can teachers provide effective praise and encouragement? First and foremost, it's crucial to be specific in your praise. Rather than saying, good job or nice work, try to provide feedback that highlights the specific effort, strategies, or improvement the the student has made. For example, you could say, I noticed how you revised your essay and included strong supporting evidence. I can see that you have focused on the feedback that you received in order to improve your writing. Secondly, encourage a growth mindset. Help your students understand that intelligence and abilities can be developed through effort and perseverance when praising their achievements emphasize the process they went through, the strategies they used, and the obstacles they overcame. This will instill a belief that hard work and resilience leads to success. For instance, you could say you struggled with that math concept at first, but you persisted, asked questions, and now you've mastered it. Your dedication and willingness to learn has paid off. Another effective strategy is to provide meaningful feedback. While praise is important, constructive criticism plays an equally vital role. When providing feedback, focus on students' efforts and progress rather than labeling them from a fixed sorry. When providing feedback, focus on the student's effort and progress rather than labeling them with a fixed trait. This helps students understand that mistakes and setbacks are part of the learning process and can be stepping stones to improvement. For example, you can say, I appreciate the effort you put into this project, you've made great strides, and here are a few areas where you can continue to grow. Finally, foster intrinsic motivation by connecting students' interests and passions to their learning experiences. Encourage them to explore topics that genuinely excite them and provide opportunities for choice in how learning is represented. When students have a personal investment in their work, they become more engaged, enthusiastic, and self-motivated to excel. Celebrate their unique talents and encourage them to take ownership of their learning journey. Remember, positive reinforcement isn't isn't about empty praise or sugarcoating. It's about recognizing and appreciating the efforts and progress of your students, motivating them to reach their full potential.
4: Leanne Young's Seen, Heard, and Valued Universal Design for Learning and Beyond provides an insightful and practical exploration of how the Universal Design for Learning framework can be harnessed to create a classroom. Re- every student feels acknowledged and empowered. This text is a crucial read for any educator who strives to make their classroom an inclusive, dynamic, and engaging learning environment. Young illustrates how UDL isn't just a set of strategies. It's a mindset that influences every aspect of teaching, from curriculum planning to assessment. She expertly guides the reader through a thorough understanding of the UDL framework, providing a myriad of examples and scenarios to elucidate these concepts. Her exposition makes UDL approachable and practical, allowing educators to see how it can be applied in real-world classrooms. One of the book's strengths is that Young provides actionable strategies and guidance, making the book not just theoretical, but intensely practical. With an emphasis that UDL can benefit all students, not just those with disabilities, Teachers are able to create flexible learning environments where they can meet the needs of a diverse student population. This inclusive vision is a valuable reminder that every student, regardless of ability or background, deserves an education that respects and nurtures their individual strengths and needs. Seen, Heard, and Valued, Universal Design for Learning and Beyond is a compelling and insightful guide that reimagines inclusive education through the lens of UDL. Its combination of theory, practical advice, and commitment to student agency makes it an invaluable resource for an educator. By embracing the framework outlined in this book, teachers can create classrooms where all students are indeed seen, heard, and valued.
0: As we near the end of the episode, we'd like to thank Vince Bustamante again for his interview for us today. And to you, our listeners, who make this podcast possible, stay connected with us on Instagram at ecsdlearning and subscribe to the podcast for updates on future episodes. We hope today's episode has inspired you to embrace positive reinforcement and create your own supportive learning environments for your students. As you continue this journey of growth, may you find fulfillment and meaningful connections. Thank you for being a part of the Learning Curve ECSD podcast.